It's happening again. Welcome to Work Cookie, a CBOC podcast. As we broadcast around the world, get bite-sized morsels and tidbits from our industrial organizational psychologists, other experts, and the latest research on the workplace to boost your organization's effectiveness. Sign up now at CBOC.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from our experts at CBOC.com. Welcome. I'm Dr. Jeremy Lookaball, Industrial Organizational Psychology Consultant and Workplace Communication and Negotiation Coach. If you are in or getting into the industrial organizational psychology field and you feel a little lost in the crowd, you're looking for support to jumpstart your career, blaze your IO path, and maybe get the answers that your degree program never gave you about what it's actually like to work as an IO psych practitioner, check out CBOC's IO Career Pathfinder membership at cboc.com. If you're a more established IO practitioner, check out our expert membership to showcase your expertise, build your brand, and be part of our initiatives. Do you lead a university's IO or applied IO psychology program? Go to cboc.com, get in touch to partner with us to build your program's brand and get solid real world support for your students. Let us do the heavy lifting for their engagement and experiences. And businesses, get in touch. We've got the bank of experts you need for coaching, consultation, and program development and execution. Please subscribe to the podcast because it helps us out and it helps the field of IO. Also, today, we have Tom Bradshaw with us, a voice and speech coach and a damn good actor too. He is the official voice and speech coach for the industrial organizational psychology community. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our weekly gathering of IOs, HR, recruiters, and one actor as we discuss the world of work and try to make everyone's life just a little bit better. Uh, Jeremy, we're going to continue doing some spring cleaning this week, and we're going to talk about how to maintain the momentum I'm, I'm hoping that I'm starting to get. That is correct. Um, we've got... A bit of a, it's going to be an, an interesting navigation today. The references that we have and some of the, the articles that we're pulling some of the research from is going to pull us into process, like maintaining processes. It's also going to pull us into a little bit of maintaining memory. So how do we do individually with maintaining memories? We're going to dip into machine mer- learning a little bit into AI and when I say that, I don't mean it by AI. I mean it by 1983, I think, when AI was, I'm guessing people had thought of it back then, but it was nothing like it has been in the past two years. So we're going to we're gonna juke and jive and we're going to jump around a little bit today. So we definitely have some in- interesting things to share. So 1983, not 1984. I believe. It could be both, Tom, depending, depending on when. Because actually, here's the thing. The interesting thing that I was going to note was a lot of these articles are fairly old. And one of the questions is, especially when people are doing research for projects and whatnot, does it matter how old the research is? It doesn't, because that research is what is needed in order to build on that. And then we can look at more current research. So the age of the research doesn't matter. It's still research. It's still data. But here it's interesting because we can take that and we can pull it in to uh, almost a, not nostalgic, but for those of us who were alive in like the 80s and the 90s, we can see some of uh, how things were done back then when we were younger and then just how much things have changed. Tom? Yeah, my daughters cannot comprehend a world without the internet. I grew up playing with sticks. So, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Cans and and, uh, strings for for funds. Um, I'll go ahead and... I, I can share if, if you like some of the uh, uh, let's start off with the definition. So this is going to be the cook reference that you that everyone sees in the, either the chat or the, or the description. So here we're going to we're going to take this this because we're talking about maintenance, right? Spring cleaning and maintenance. This is from the British Standards Institution from 1974. Maintenance is work undertaken in order to keep or restore every facility i.e. every part of a site, building and contents to an acceptable standard. We're going to notice a lot of, we're going to have to expand our brains a little bit and just do a lot of parallels because we can take that to a physical you know, building per se. And we're going to take that into a, a modern office space and also into, into our brains, right? Maintaining that, the contents, et cetera. 
And there's three types of maintenance activities. I'm sure there's there's more, but these are the, the focuses from this particular research in terms of when we're categorized, this is the basis of when work must be done in terms of maintenance. There's either emergency maintenance, routine maintenance, and preservative maintenance. Tom, what is that when we're talking about, so we're talking about spring cleaning, we're talking about out with the old and with the new. Last week was habits, was why your <laughs> New Year's resolutions. So we can also get into habits here, but we also we're talking about other stakeholders involved. We're talking about, especially with the workplace, we're talking about bosses, we're talking about teams, we're talking about unintended consequences. So when you look at, when you think of emergency maintenance or routine maintenance, Tom, or preventative maintenance, what comes to mind or what question immediately pulls out to you? Uh, well, <laughs> when I think about those terms, I actually go to my car, like I've got a preservative maintenance, I've got to maintain it, you know, all those things. And I can do all that. And spring's a really good time to do that because, you know, it's spring, you got to change your oil, you got to change your air filter, you got to go through all of those processes. But then I kind of forget about all of that stuff until the fall when I have to do it again. And it's a little bit like spring cleaning. We, you know, we get all the garbage out and then we spend 12 months bringing more garbage in. It's perfect, Tom. And no one's going to believe we don't rehearse these. So here's some takeaways from this Cook article. Don't So don't throw it all away. And we look at this from a knowledge standpoint within organizations. So we have to take a careful look at what knowledge is gained from experience and really put that into a special place. The idea is you have to give it a, a renewed purpose. When you look through history, the way, one of the biggest ways to enact, uh, let's just call it culture change. And I'm talking about from 300 BC to today, countless examples, but everybody wants, in general, people want change. They want things to be better. They want things to be different. But of course, underlying people very much dislike change because we cling to what's comfortable. We know this. It's important that even like if you have work, you know, certain workplace rituals or certain workplace setups, don't throw it all away. Now we're talking about more kind of physical characteristics because people still need some things that are familiar. So you take the old and you tie that into the new. And especially when you're looking at experience, you've got, we've got to make that fundamental to what we hope to achieve in the future. And if we think about it this way, useful knowledge unremembered is wasted and useful knowledge that becomes, that is unused. According to theory of constraints, it becomes a free resource. And when I say useful knowledge unremembered is wasted, I don't mean that the time spent to get that is wasted because we have to be able to discover, we have to be able to navigate and change direction. So no knowledge is, is you know, wasted if unused, but we have to understand that knowledge that we have can become a free resource. And then, of course, Tom, we can tie this into let's get the salaries that we're paying for individuals in the workplace. They come with so much free resources technically because they're un untapped and that we can start to tap into, especially when we're looking at here, we clean house. Now we have these new processes. Maybe we're building a new culture. What can we tap into that is still a, that, that is essentially a free resource. That's a great idea. And I see hands are starting to pop up. So Maria, let's go to you. This is great. Cause I think, you know, spring cleaning always reminds us of what we need to do, but also reminds us of what we need to keep in line. And I think it's the same in organizations. In organizations, I think one of the biggest factors with change is the lack of communication, but also recommunicating the tenets of the, the vision, the tenets of the mission of the organization, and how, as we're growing uh, or changing, how we still want to stay true to those tenets. And if any of them need to change, how that evolution is going to take place. So it's not necessarily forgetting why we're doing what we're doing, but just staying fresh, if you will, to be able to accomplish new things using the tools that we're being afforded in a way that's going to complement all the great work that we've done. Oh, I like the way that's sounding and the direction that would take us. Lee, let's go to you. You know, I, I think that this goes pretty basic to culture and to change management. Uh, because if you look at most organizations, I mean, you know, using Jeremy's example, 
it's emergency maintenance. A lot of times your change is when the stuff hits the fan. And so it all of a sudden becomes, you know, a, a fire drill. Everybody's running around with their hair on fire trying to, to, to address something that could have been dealt with. And the, I see Martha laughing at me. I'm trying to keep it clean, Martha. The other types of maintenance, you know, your preventative and your, and your routine maintenance, you know, your routine is, you know, that's, that's, that's your normal stuff, right? We're going to, we're going to process, we're going to, you know, steady state, we're going to keep it going. Now that's very key though, because we don't always differentiate between the positive things that we want to keep going and the not so positive things. And so a lot of times we just keep steady state, you know, we keep it static and we just keep moving because this is what we've always done. This is what we're always going to do. And we don't realize that, yeah, just because you keep running into the wall doesn't mean you have to keep doing that. And so you need to do some some soul searching there, you know, or, or on an organizational perspective to figure that out. And doing the preventative is part of that is that looking at that. So what are we doing that's working? What are we doing that's that not as not as well? And let's do something about that before it becomes the emergency. And you can start making those incremental changes to your culture to embrace those things, you know, and, and that way you can become a proactive organization rather than reactive. Well, let me ask you, Lee, because, you know, that's exactly what I'm seeing out in the real world is a year ago, everybody was talking about the great resignation and, you know, how things needed to change. And some organizations stepped forward and they've started to go down that path. But I still see a lot of organizations out there who, you know, things are working and, yeah, we're losing a few employees, but, you know, there's a long line at the door. So, you know, we're, we're surviving and they're not going to change until they're in crisis. Uh, but what is the messaging we might have to put out there for them to go that you shouldn't be waiting <laughs> until you come into the office one day and there's nobody there? You know, how do we get that message to them? You don't ask for much. This is where an IO can shine in this, because this is where we come in and we do some root cause analysis. We do so, we, we show some ROI and we go, OK, yeah, so you've got some turnover. Yeah, you got a line at the door. But what is that really costing me? Well, every time I have a new hire, I'm probably paying them more than I paid the one that left, you know, which kind of sucks for the people that are there. But that's that's a reality in 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 the business world. And uh, what does it cost for onboarding? I mean, I've seen everything from, you know, 250,000 up to, you know, 110 percent of their annual salary just in onboarding costs and training costs and compliance costs and all these kind of things. So when you actually sit down and you look at what is the the ROI on this, if I invest a little bit in my people, what am I really saving? Well, for every person that leaves and I bring in somebody new, it's costing me $300,000. Well, those that's real numbers. And you if you put that in front of me, that's going to get my attention. That's a lot of zeros. That's where we can come in and we can look at that. And then also, as far as the culture goes, and uh, somebody posted something about this recently, that you can do more than that, you go a little bit deeper. Okay, so you've lost, you know, X percentage of people in this amount of time. Who were those people? Were they particular demographics? Were they particular departments? Were they, was it a particular job class? And then you can kind of really dig down deep and you can kind of figure out, well, do we have a DEI issue? Do we have a management issue? Do we have all these other things that we can work to correct to, because it's all incremental and it's all tied together. And if you don't, you, you can't just fix one. I mean, that's like putting a Band-Aid on a Bobo and ignoring the fact that you've got, you're missing a leg. There's, there's other things going on that you might want to pay some attention to, but people, people have blinders on. And, and sometimes they just frankly don't know. And that's where we come in, where we can come in and go, yeah, you know, there, there seems to be an issue. Are you aware of this? And of course, they're, you know, you get that shocked face. Oh, I was, you know what they call the Pikachu face? You know, I didn't know that. But so that's where we can come in and we can uh, we can totally help an organization to overcome some of these things and to improve their culture and to become that place people want to work and want to stay if they're willing to make the steps. I mean, that, that comes always comes down to that. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, Linda Ann, let's go to you. I think that one of the pieces that people need to pay attention to when you're trying to initiate some change or to integrate change is to um, make sure that do two things. You're 
identifying the expectations that you want to accomplish and, and letting them know ahead of time and the why. You know, when people understand the why you're doing something instead of coming in and just saying, we're making this change because it came down from on high or wherever, it it doesn't stick as much. It doesn't mean as much. But if people can understand the why, even if they don't just don't agree with the process, they understand it's why the why and that it's been well thought out and it has a real purpose, you know, the expectations, it tends to be integrated a little bit better. And totally agree with Lee. You know, one of my pet peeves is the things that bother me is the preventable stuff. You know, there's always no matter how much you plan, how much, no matter how hard you work. There's always going to be the unexpected, the things that you couldn't plan for, and that happens, right? And you can just roll with that. But it's the preventable things that make me nuts. And prevention can be built into your processes. Prevention, you know, could be key because you know I've I've been with organizations where it's like a slow moving car accident. You can see one car over there and one car over there, and you know they're going to collide, but nobody will do anything about it. <laughs> so you just sit back and watch. Um, Eva, let's go to you. Good morning, everyone, and good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is a beautiful conversation. I would add to this, change is important so you don't have a lazy brain. I think sometimes when we're too comfortable and we are not really pushing ourselves to this next space that we're trying to go to, then we become stagnant and no new ideas are coming through. So if the organizations are are keeping themselves within a certain realm and not stepping out or doing things that are different or innovative, we can expect more of the same. We can, we can then predict what the future is going to be. So if we can't change in that way where we're making our brains a bit more active, then we can expect more of the same. So I would say to go there. I agree with you 100% because I've seen situations in businesses where you know, the, the employees are, are eager to make changes. They've got great ideas, but they can't get past their, their manager or their supervisor who, you know, looks around and goes, I like my life. If, if we interact these change, I might have to work more. So we're not going down that direction. Is, is that rampant through industry? I see it a lot in the industry that I that I'm in. Um, I have a 23-year-old son that I talk about sometimes, and he's working with someone who should be retired, if I can be very frank about it. But the guy is not retiring for whatever reason that he's still there. And my son has have all of these wonderful ideas and he feels stagnant because he can't get it across. So I'm constantly trying to get him to, well, to help him to see the bigger picture and then for him to have ideas based on that to move forward. And what I've noticed once he kind of gets an understanding of the different age gaps of people and where we are as ourselves as an age in the in the workforce, then I, I try to get him to see, and then he thinks on his own, okay, this person is, I mean, his boss is probably in his probably 92 and he's running a business. So a 92-year-old working with a 23-year-old, that's how many years away? What I try to help my son see in that situation where this job and this business still moves forward is what is the value to help this man at his age group meet each age group in the middle based on his mother's a certain age, this guy's a certain age, people that he knows a certain age, and how how does he help them as a 23-year-old with grand ideas meet in the middle? And Sometimes he's really successful. Yeah, and at 92, um, <laughs> I hit 92. It's the opening day of the baseball season. I'm going to be spending a lot of my time watching baseball games. Uh, Dr. Regic, let's go to you. I like what Lee mentioned, the idea of working an organization to become more proactive than reactive. Now, as Linda Ann mentioned, there are going to be things that we didn't expect or an organization didn't expect and a reaction will be required. But the goal is for the reactions to be fewer than the proactive uh, attempts and, and uses of energy. Now, the idea of IOs helping organizations with such a shift with really any changes is so important. And Lee brought that up. You know, we've been looking at this 
newest revolution within the workplace. And we've been talking about the great resignation. But I was recently reminded to look at this great resignation through a different lens. A friend of mine who is a business owner experienced the great resignation to some degree, and she was quite thankful for it as a business owner because who left but the highest paid people who did the least. And that was a breath of fresh air for her organization. So if she needs more talent, she could go out and find more talent that would be better suited to do the jobs that needed to be done. And again, regardless of whether as an organization you're trying to retain your talent or you're trying to replace your talent, regardless of what is best for your particular organization, this is where IOs come in extremely handy because we truly can help you to look at each situation and see it for what it is and determine what is the best bet for the overall health for the organization. You know, sometimes we look at things and we've been so focused on this great resignation and we think that every organization is in a panic mode over it, but that's not necessarily the truth. Some organizations have welcomed it and have turned it to their advantage to find new talent, better suited people, uh, better suited um, fit to the jobs that, that are changing and that need changing. Change and spring cleaning and reorganizing, those are all good things for whatever suits your organization best. Once again, IOs can be a really big help. Yeah. You know, if I decided to trek across the Amazon, I would like to have a guide to to chart my course because I will get lost and eaten. Uh, Maria, let's go to you. Yeah, I think one of the other things that happens, especially now with people um, turning over in positions so quickly, is that organizations or leadership aren't really um, cataloging, if you will, the the experiences that they've had, and they're not keeping good data on what's worked and what hasn't worked. And you'll have that small population of, well, we've always done it like this, as Lee said, and then you'll have the newcomers, just as Eva mentioned, you know, that says, I have these great ideas. Um, And I think Jeremy talked about the 80s. In the 80s, what did we do all the time? We took notes because we didn't have computers. We didn't have, you know, all these electronics. And we took notes and we were able to refer back to those notes. And sometimes we do have to get back to basics just to remind ourselves that some of these things did work, but it wasn't the right time. Or some of these things didn't work because we didn't have the right tools. So I think it's really important for some organizations to really look back and say, okay, we've done this and it didn't work, but why? And if they have those archives, if you will, they can reference them and then start fresh. Yeah, you're right. We don't do that. And every time we lose a leader, we lose all of that information about the organization that they've been able to collect. So maybe, you know, organizations also need archivists. To, you know. Absolutely. Something, something. I was talking to somebody the other day and they asked something. I was able to pull an email that was 10 years old that referenced that material because I'm a hoarder, you know, I'm an email hoarder, but for a reason. And, and thankfully my, you know, my photographic memory was able to remind me that, yes, I, I have those emails, um, but it was helpful because we didn't have to go back and reinvent the wheel. Yeah, that, that, that's a great piece of advice. Uh, Linda, and let's go to you. I want to build on what Dr. Martha mentioned and the example that she used with the business owner who was happy that some of her team left because they were overpaid basically for what they were doing. And I want to draw a, a line between the kinds of change we're t- we can talk about here. And that is she experienced change through the turnover. But what I didn't hear, and I don't know if this is true or not, but but we can look at there was a pattern of behavior that that leader allowed for that situation to occur, right? She allowed for those people to not do the amount of work that equaled the value of what they were being paid. And so you can look at that change as a good change. However, if you don't go to, as as Lee mentioned, that root cause of what created that situation, she's going to end up in that same place again, right? 
because the thing that caused that problem or allowed that problem to occur hasn't changed. And so that's really one of the things that I think is important when you look at change or um, evaluate situations is to go to that critical root cause of it and make the change there versus the Band-Aid. Yeah, it's sort of a little bit like Maria says as well, where, you know, if we're not documenting the changes or, you know, what's gone in the past, we're just going to repeat the same mistakes over and over again. Um, yeah, I think that's a good lesson. Ali, let's go to you. You know, just to to build a little bit on what Linda Ann said, this is one of those examples of why knowing what's going on in your organization is so, you know, and for leaders to not stay up in the clouds and not know what the people on the ground are doing. Because there have been many, many cases of somebody leaving and nobody really realizing how much they did, positive or negative. But then somebody leaves, you don't even you don't even notice. I mean, that's a problem. But then the other thing is the problem where somebody leaves and you're like, holy cow, this guy was doing like four people's work. What are those other four people doing? And so you need to to know these things because you need to, you know, if you've got some dead weight, I mean, you know, there's some changes that could be made, you know, that, which doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of them, but it could mean some reshuffling of organizations and that sort of thing. And then to go back with what Maria was saying, the one thing we have to stay away from is change for change's sake. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You know, there are times when you've got a process that works that there's really no need to change it. I mean, could we make it more efficient? You know, well, yeah, maybe. But, you know, what is? But what are we talking about? Are we talking about a 5% improvement in efficiency that only for the amazingly low price of $100,000? Is that really worth it? And so sometimes you really have to look at why am I looking to change? Is there really a need? And, you know, to go back on the the, you know, the record keeping kind of thing, we've tried that before. Well, that doesn't mean it won't work. That just may mean that, we need to come in a different angle. Maybe the front door was locked, but the back door is open. I can still get in the house. I just need to change my approach. And so sometimes when you get that new person in, like Eva said, you know, get that new person in that says, I've got a fantastic idea. And they're like, well, we've done that before. True. We did. But did we do it that way? Because sometimes just a new approach on an old idea can be exactly what the doctor ordered. Yeah. And sometimes you might have tried it before, but you didn't have me. <laughs> and that's going to be the difference. There you go. Dr. Rajik, let's go back to you. To add to Lee's point, maybe you have tried this before. And maybe the suggestion is to try it again. But the time is different. You may be trying the same exact thing. But it's today. It's not yesterday. It's not a week ago. It's not a month ago. Circumstances may have changed. Resources may have changed. So there are so many things that I think do get ignored and do get swept under the rug because we've done this before or a simple, oh, that won't work here. How do you know you haven't tried it? That was a a really good point. The other thing, going back to what Maria said, hoarding, I prefer your term, Tom, archiving. I don't want to enable hoarding. That's that's a clinical issue. So let's talk about archiving. Because when we fail to archive and we forget, because look, there's a lot to remember. If we don't properly archive in a way where we can reference easily, we will forget. And then we find ourselves trying to reinvent the wheel and think about the wasted time and energy that that presents. So archiving, not hoarding people, archiving is the answer here. 300%. Jeremy, back to you. Before I share this, Dr. Martha, you have a podcast and I wanted you to share a little bit about that with with our group and with our listeners because you have a really great uh, work psychology podcast. Could you share a little bit about that? Sure. So it's focused on on the psychology of work. It's called Work Psychology a workplace psychology with Dr. Martha Greidek. And um, basically I address all kinds of issues that have to do with the psychology of work and work-related items, whether that's pertinent to employees or employers or both, because most of us work in one way or another. Most of us have an employer or perhaps employees, and we found, find ourselves having to deal with people And when it comes to people, psychology is key. So it's so important that we know how to make our interactions the best that we can so that everybody can enjoy their time at the workplace. And basically, that's the focus. 
Thank you. So everyone check out Dr. Martha's podcast. It's called Work. What's, uh, please give us the title again. Workplace Psychology with Dr. Martha Breidek. Thank you. I wanted to share. So I had I had I had a thought based on what uh, the the story that Ava was sharing was sharing. But first, Lee mentioned something about uh, and a trigger thought about leaders knowing what's going on with your workforce. I love I love history. I love history. I don't know how to explain it. I just I love history. I love reading about it. I love history. If I didn't say it, it's so interesting and it's so fascinating. I stumbled across, lo and behold, the most recent thing that that I'm learning about is the uh, the Hawaiian pineapple wars, I guess is whatever you would call it, and how the entire pineapple industry got started in Hawaii, where it wasn't a native fruit to Hawaii. And lo and behold, I'm learning about Dole. I forget the first name, but we all know what Dole fruit is. We all have the Dole cans of, of pineapple and whatnot. But he ended up, started out with 50,000 pineapple plants that were planted on and on and on, yada, 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 buys an, one of the Hawaiian islands, turns it into the biggest pineapple producing area in the world. And at the end, well, I'm not at the end of learning about it, but at least 12, 20, oh my gosh, 12, I'll say 12 I'm just going to say a billion acres because I don't know the exact number. So 7 billion acres is what, what he had for these pineapples. But he would uh, not, and this wasn't necessarily out of empathy and being a good boss, but he was always walking around and he was talking about and getting to know his employees because out of self-interest. And this is, we all want to, we all, of course, want to be, you know, altruistic and ethical, and but we also have to look at people's self-interest. Out of his own self-interest, he would provide free. And this is back in 19, you know, it was 1906 to like 1935-ish. So long time ago. He would provide free daycare. He would he had a cafeteria, you know, free food for, for workers in some of these facilities. The reason he did it was completely out of self-interest. He didn't want his workers to go on strike, but it was because it would kill the, the pineapple empire that he was building. But again, out of his self-interest, he was able to be better for his workers. When we're looking at this, and here's how I'm going to tie it into what Ava was mentioning about her son with the, I believe, 92-year-old gentleman who is in charge of this business. Let me see if I can get a full screen here. Yes, I want to get Ava's reaction. So Ava, you said 92, correct? There we go. When your son's talking to him, so at 92, there's probably more of that legacy. And, and 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 these are probably things you've already talked about, already thought about. But for our audience to add, there's that issue of legacy. And there's probably a lot of, I don't want to, I don't want anything to go wrong. However, there might be pieces of, of this gentleman's legacy that he hasn't yet realized even or tapped into. Maybe he hasn't been as thoughtful. Maybe he's thought about his legacy, but maybe he hasn't thought about what he can do for his legacy that he hasn't thought of yet. So in that regard, your son could be could effectively be a a, a coach or some kind of a, I don't know how he, what you would call it you know in a sense like a bit of a mentor in a way on his legacy and start to thanks Laura and start to help him see how these particular changes maybe ninety percent of them won't work but maybe one of them will fit into what his legacy is and at least allow him to to open the conversation the good news is. He's already said no to these. And when people say no, they felt that they've done themselves justice. They felt that they put up that barrier. And a lot of times when we hear the word no, that's when we know that the other, we know where the other, it's good because we know where the other person stands. That person becomes to settle into just a little bit of a comfort zone and is more willing to have the conversation, especially if it's tied into what this person might see as a potential legacy, because there are, of, of course, tons and tons and tons of potentials that could come out of these ideas. And one of them might hit on that legacy. And then we're talking about maintenance. So the important thing for your son would be, here's how we could do it, that where it's almost bulletproof and foolproof. And here's how, uh, as uncomfortable a conversation might go, when you're no longer around, here's how we can actually maintain and continue this as a very solid part of your legacy. It might be something like foot in the door, baby steps, 
but really try to think about how this gentleman is seeing things. And the same thing is within organizations when we're looking at at change and getting buy-in. What are people's self-interest and how can we speak to that so that we can actually cause action? We've we've mentioned this a lot of times. When people, people don't like change until they see themselves as their current state is, which we call misery, not like misery of the movie or misery as we see it, but dissatisfied. And then they realize they're dissatisfied with their current state because then they can vision out to a future that's better. Or in this case, uh, for, for, for Ava's son, a legacy that is better. Then they might be, then this gentleman might become dissatisfied with his current legacy, perhaps, but it's a way it's almost for your son. It might be a way to at least feel that we want to be heard. And for your son, it could just be a matter of, I at least want to know that he's considering my ideas. I remember I fought a parking ticket once because the I just wanted to know that I did all I could to get out of this out of this parking ticket. And by the way, I did not park in an illegal spot or I did not not pay the, the, the 25 cents because the poles were not in the center of the parking spot. So you didn't know if you were if you were to put a quarter into the into the front left or the front right. So I had put it into the maybe the front left. But then they, I was parked in the front right. So then I got a parking ticket and I was highly upset. So I went and fought it. But I I know I lost, but that was fine. I just wanted to be heard. Part of it is how do we get people, how do we feel heard? And part of that is being strategic enough and focusing on how other people see things so that we can open them up to that conversation and then know that we're having a leading a conversation into a better place maybe than it would normally go. Let, let me take you back to self-interest, Jeremy, because... I've seen this go awry, you know, because most owners, leaders are not walking through the factories. They're not walking through the pineapple fields, checking on things. They're relying on their, you know, mid-level managers who, you know, for their own self-interest will report up all of the successes. But the turmoil, we we don't want leadership to know about that. And that's in my self-interest for them not to know about that. And then things don't change or they get worse. How do we deal with that? Well, you asked that, Tom, and people are going to find it hard to believe that we don't rehearse these. Let's go back to another point in history. I'm going back to the 1500s, mid 1500s, I believe. And forgive me for all you real history buffs out there who know the names and the dates and the locations. You look at Japan and and the conquering of Japan and, and, and and the clans within Japan. The one person, the first person to fully conquer the entire land of Japan and be emperor of the entire land of Japan, decided that he wanted to go and conquer China. But in order to conquer China, he had to go through Korea. So Korea, after, you know, they didn't want to initially, but they said, okay, oh, no, I'm sorry. They actually said, no, you're not going through Korea because they had had for about 130 years, a uh, they didn't like each other, Japan and Korea. So they said, no. So Japan, so this, this guy who just conquered all of Japan, had control of all the clans, said, I'm going to do it anyway. So they go in. And what happened is all these groups that took up arms because the, the military, the former formal military of Korea was, wasn't, wasn't doing, wasn't, they, they were losing all of them. Tiny groups, you know, these, the farmers, the merchants and everything started taking up arms and defeating the Japanese army. They started out with 200,000 and within just a year or two, they only had 50,000. But to your point, Tom, the generals were so afraid to report back any bad news that they only reported back good news. And there came a point that this emperor of Japan sent a letter to China and said, are you ready to, con- are you ready to concede? I want this. I want this. I want half of Korea. They knew he was losing and almost done. He he actually thought that he was winning because only good news was reported back. And you can take it from there in terms of how it ended up. So, Tom, exactly to your point, there is an example of if you're at the top, it might be a good idea to create the kind of environment, approachability. Uh, Here, the generals knew that they'd probably be killed if they reported back bad news. There is... uh, still biting fear of of managers who aren't wanting to approach with bad news. And that can be detrimental. Tom? Yeah, I agree 100%. Linda Ann, let's go to you. Wow, that's quite a, 
quite a, a story and situation there, Jeremy. <laughs> but and that just reiterates, you know, whenever I've got a situation where, you know, things didn't go well or there's a problem, I run to the person that I report to because I never want them to find out some other way. That's not a good look at all. So, but I wanted to to just meant follow up on um, what you were talking about with uh, Dole and the pineapple um, plantations and so forth. And I think that the one of the things that a lot of leaders can take away from that is that he really understood how key his employees were to his own success. And I think that a lot of employers don't realize how important they really are to their success. They're more focused on how wonderful they are and what a good job they're doing versus how much they would fail if their employees aren't performing well and aren't having their needs met. And what he did, whether consciously or unconsciously, is he valued his employees and took care of their their needs. And that's one of the things that led to his success. And I think that they current leaders could really look at that and say, oh, yeah, I really need these employees. Do you see, probably shouldn't mention any names, but I see major corporations who need to hear that message. You know, billion dollar corporations who, you know, it's a revolving door for their employees and they don't really seem to care. You come in, you do what we say, you do it the way we say it. And at the end of the week, we'll give you some money. But they don't really care about the employees. Does that need to change? Well, it depends on how much money they're willing to lose. <laughs> you know, because companies that have that revolving door are bleeding money, bleeding money, whether they realize it or not. Yeah, they certainly are. Uh, Ava, let's go to you. Thank you for the the input, Dr. Jeremy. That was good. And whoever said about the mentoring, that was also beautiful. And I've been using some of these things that you have um, shared. And it's sort of working in a good direction. And I love that part about the self-interest. But I would like to, to add a little bit to what Linda Ann said about Linda Ann and Tom said about the income part of our compensation when we're working for a company. I think it would behoove these corporations to pay attention to what is going on with their employees when they're being paid. Because as we've been saying before, all it takes is a group of people to leave, whether they're leaving for ill will or goodwill. All it takes for a person to leave or a group of people to leave. For me, when I take a good look at it and when I'm talking to business owners and companies, I I, I try to get them to understand what happens when money loses its value. And what I mean by that is I'm losing value if I'm paying you, disrespecting you, ignoring you, and still expecting you to do the job. I should expect that you're going to do something that is against company policy if I'm if I'm if I am disrespecting you in some way. So, I am now losing value in my own money. So, what do I have to do to set up I sometimes before I finish that, I sometimes I think the mission of the company and how they set things up is totally different from what they're expecting moving forward. Sure where I left off, but what I was saying about money losing its value as a company owner or business owner, if I'm not respecting you or I'm just leaving you to the wolves, I expect you to do things to the wolves. There is a misalignment. First of all, what we're expecting of the employees based on pay. I sometimes when I'm talking to some of these business owners, I'm like, did you just write up something one day and just say, go for it? And we made the chips fall when they may. We as IOs, we need to go in or we, maybe we should go in and get them to understand what is the value that you're expecting based on the pay that you're giving? And are you aligned to that thing? So that's what I would ask. Uh, let me ask you, does that sort of work both ways? Because <laughs> once I'm going to, I'm not going to mention any of those top companies, but you know, here's a company that's making over a billion dollars a year, but they're paying minimum wage to their frontline workers. Is that part of the disrespect? Like, shouldn't, if we're making over a billion dollars with our company, shouldn't we be looking after those frontline employees better? I don't think so, but here's where it becomes a little bit tricky. If I'm coming in and I'm expecting 
to be paid $9 an hour, then I'm expecting to give you $9 worth of value. But if I'm coming in expecting to get um, $500,000 for the year, I'm going to be giving you $500,000 worth of my service or my input into the job. I think it's relative to where you are in the company, and then you move forward based on that. But everybody should be respected based on their merit also, not just what they're paid for. Yes, you're absolutely right. Lee, let's go to you. That that brings up an interesting thing that I don't think we talk about a, a lot, and that's the value of what of what you're providing. Because you know, when you say, "Oh, your first line workers are making minimum wage," what are they doing? I mean, what their their actual jobs? They may be unskilled, entry level, just got out of high school workers, and then minimum wage may be entirely appropriate for those positions. Then again. It may not. So you have to actually look at what the value that is being provided. And to Eva's point, you know, if you're, if you're getting nine dollars an hour, well, I expect nine dollars an hour worth of work. I mean, that's just kind of how that works. If you want me to give more, then maybe you should pay more. And you have to look at what it's the market and what your competitors are doing and all this kind of stuff. Because believe me, if you don't value your employees, someone else will. And so you have to take that into consideration, uh, you know, what, what's going on. And it's not just monetary. I heard a story, and I don't know, remember if it was on here or something, but it was a story about two, two companies basically across the street from each other that one of them paid really, really well. One of them didn't pay as well, but they had a great culture and they had some, you know, some good fringe benefits. And company one would lose people to company two who would go and take less pay because of the other parts of the situation and the environment. <clears throat> so, you know, that is, there's a whole lot of things that you have to unpack there. You know, we, we, we got to remember, you know, culture and compensation, not just pay because there, there are so many facets to that. And you also have to, to be, especially in today's world. I mean, you see all these layoffs and everything else. And, uh, and I've seen things talking about, well, you know, some of the, some of this is strategy. So I get rid of all these people and then I hire some others, but I don't pay them as much. I'm readjusting the pay scale, which is kind of a crummy thing to do. But, you know, there's there's you could say there, there's a business case maybe for that. But what's the real cost? And, you know, and just like we're talking about, you know, hemorrhaging people, you know, I'm making a billion dollars a year, but I'm hemorrhaging people. I could be making one point five billion if I didn't have so much turnover comes back to what is the actual cost. And to go back to the. uh you know, talked about knowing your employees and, and everything. There's also right and wrong ways to do that. I, I worked for an organization one time where the owner would bypass the management and would go to the employees. And and he had this habit of actually following you into the restroom and kind of cornering you into the uncomfortable situation so that you just kind of blurt out the answer to get him to leave you alone. And you learned pretty quick that if that happened to you, you immediately after washing your hands, go find your boss and say, the big boss just asked me this question. And of course, he probably knew the answer when he when he asked me the question, but they needed to know that he just asked because there was something coming. And so you had that kind of culture of fear going on there of pitting, almost pitting people against each other. I mean, yeah, he kind of knew what was going on, but that, there were really better ways you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Although if it works, uh, Dr. Martha, let's go to you next. And then Jeremy, I'm going to come back to you for the wrap. I think uh, Lee's story, you learn how to hold it. That's the takeaway there. Anyway, I want to go back to the pineapple story because that was a really great story. Think about how long ago that was. And that business owner had the intelligence to understand that the success of his company depends on his people collectively, the people who work for him. So he was offering the kinds of benefits that employees are fighting for today and still can't get. So think about how far ahead of his time that one person was. And that brings me to motivation because we can label his motivation as all kinds of things. But to me, he was a smart man because I think there's a big difference between a business owner who is considering a legacy for when he is gone or she is gone and they want that company to continue. This is what they're planning for. So they may stay with the organization way longer than they need to be. But if that is their main goal to plan the legacy and how this 
organization will continue long after they're gone. That makes a big difference versus if you have a board of directors who are truly there for themselves more than anything else. And as long as they make it to their own retirement or whatever financial goal they need to meet, and then it doesn't matter if the organization falls apart the next day, that's going to make the big difference in what kind of decisions you make as a company and how you treat your employees, whether you're going to respect them and give them those benefits that make a difference for your people to keep them happy and to keep them building up your organization, or you're just going to take them for whatever they can get. Don't worry about turnover and then leave with your money purse when, when you're done there. Yeah, it's going to be interesting over the next few years to you, know, maybe in five or 10 years, if we archive some things to look back and and see which organizations have succeeded and which are possibly gone. Uh, Dr. Jeremy, uh, once again, really interesting conversation, uh, but I see we're going to actually do a little bit of a change next week. We're going to be talking about the weight of consumer experiences through business reviews. Yes, we are. And everything in there is to be determined as normally as I have no update. But what I do have a little bit of a thing on is our May theme. I'm going to jump into May is uh, the implications of AI in the workplace. And what what we had today that we were going to talk about uh, with the beginning of AI and with intelligence, going to save that for for then. So stay on the edge of your seats for like 30, 40 days, just because of it in the interest of time. If anyone listening, if anyone's going to the PSYOP conference in Boston towards the end of April, and you want to meet some of us, if you want to, we'll, we'll do an, an informal meetup. Many of us are going, many of us will be there. Send a, an email to hello at cbock.com and we'd be glad to get in touch with you and we'll we'll let you know when that where and when that informal meetup will be. And a quick note. When we do these podcast episodes, if you're listening, feel free to join in. You can get your t- your free tickets at cbock.com slash events. They're open mic, so you can raise your hand. You can talk. You can be on the podcast. We would love to hear your contributions in addition to the great minds that are already here. And quickly with an announcement for in August, as following our declaration of August as IO Psychology Awareness Month, we are having a three-day experience for anybody anybody interested in IO. IO is applied IO, uh, all stakeholders. It's going to be a great thing. It's a it's com- it's completely free. You can get your tickets. And for if you're a grad student, if you're currently in grad school, if you're an IO grad student, applied psych grad student, we're going to have a sneak peek, a preview where you can come learn about what that three-day experience is going to be. That's on April 11th, 1 p.m. Eastern come hang out 45 minutes. We'll just chat about that. That is also free. Everything here, cbock.com slash events. And if you're listening to the podcast, hit the subscribe because it helps us out. Tom, can I count us out? Are we ready? Everyone, thank you. As always, see you next week. Counting out in five, four, three, two, and one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work Cookie, a Seabock podcast. Don't forget to sign up at seabock.com. That's S-E-B-O-C.com to engage with our community, gain a sense of belonging, access our other media, and get rapid advice from experts. Would it be a bad idea to make your most challenging workplace problems go away? At seabock.com. <laughs>